Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sermon Podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others so that you can go and live a life driven by faith. You and I live in a culture that is increasingly opposed to those who trust in God. And it can be a challenge to understand how we are to live in such a world. Right now, we are in a journey through the book of Daniel, learning how God calls us to live when surrounded by people who do not believe. You know, in the Bible, it wasn't just Daniel who had to do ministry in a world that didn't believe. When Jesus was on this earth, he was surrounded by people who did not believe. And today we're going to take a look at how Jesus responded to those people. And we're going to learn something about how we should respond too. It's an important topic. So I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you listen closely, because I believe God has something he would like to say to you. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you feel pressured or you feel intimidated, and in that situation, you wish you had the right words to say? You wish you knew exactly what to say. You wish you had the perfect comeback or the perfect thing to say, but... There we go. You wish you had the perfect comeback or the perfect thing to say, but in that moment, in a moment of intimidation and fear, you're not sure exactly what to say. Do you ever find yourself in that place where you feel pressured, you feel intimidated, and you're not sure exactly what to say in that moment? I always wish that I had the right words to say. I always think of four or five days later, the perfect thing to say. It comes to me way after the fact, and I don't know if you're like that too, but I wish in the moment I knew exactly what to say, but it always comes to me a few days later. A number of years ago, my roommate in seminary and I, we were paired up our first year of seminary. His name was Matt, and he was from Georgia. And he drove a little white Toyota Corolla with Georgia license plates, the old white ones. You remember with the giant peach in the middle? Do you remember those ones? And so Matt had this car, and we would ride around in it. And one time we were in downtown Boston, and we weren't sure exactly where we were supposed to go. This was before there was GPS on your cell phones. This was before there was GPS in the car. And so all we had were printed directions off MapQuest.com. Does anyone else you remember these days? Now, printed directions off MapQuest.com in and around the city of Boston are completely worthless. You know that, right? The streets change names every five feet, and it looks like spaghetti all going together, and it's impossible to get around unless you know where you are going. And so we, of course, got lost in Boston, and we came to an intersection where we thought we were supposed to take a right-hand turn. And we looked to our right, and as you can picture in your own mind, there was this giant barrier that said, road closed. Uh, seek an alternate route or detour, and there was a police officer standing in the middle of the intersection directing traffic. So when the light turned green, we just moved forward a little bit, and we started to ask the police officer where we should go to get to. I don't remember our destination. Now, here's the thing. Uh, In Georgia or Nebraska, where I come from, if the light turns green and, and you just inch forward a little bit to talk to a police officer, no big deal. Everyone's got time. The people behind you, they'll wait for the next light. That's no problem. No problem. But Boston is different. And so the light turned green, and we inched forward and started talking to the police officer, who was very nice. And the guy behind us, he saw the car. He saw the situation. Little tiny white car, big Georgia license plate on the back, and two people that have no idea where they're going talking to a police officer. And he stuck his head out the window, and in the best Bostonian way that he could, he said to us, hey, buddy, 
Start driving south and don't stop for 2,000 miles. Hard to believe that would happen in Boston, right? And you know what happens in those situations? I wish I had a line. You know, I watch movies, and, and the heroes in the movies, they have a line. Braveheart knows what to say in that moment, right? The Marvel characters, they know what to say in that moment. There is something that, that to be said, but I, I, I never have the right words. I'll think of it a week later. But in the moment, I just, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll get out of your way. And I wish I was the kind of person that had that sort of confidence, just to, just to have the right line, the comeback. I actually respect his line. That's a pretty good line, right? I wish I had something to match it. And I'll tell you what, it's not just in those situations in life that I feel like I'm left unsure what to say. But if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, my guess is that when you go out outside of the four walls of a room like this and you're out there, that you feel pressure and intimidation not to talk about what you believe, not to share what you believe. If you want to live your life a certain way, you can live your life a certain way within the four walls of your house, but don't you dare in today's world take it outside of the walls of the church or the walls of your house. Does anyone else feel pressured or intimidated in today's world in that way? Those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus Christ, it happens. And here's the thing. Sometimes, and I'll even admit this as, as, as your pastor, sometimes I find myself as a, at a loss in those moments of how to respond. What words do I say? What words do I use to try and come up with some sort of response that would, that would, that would, would fight back against the, the intimidation or the, or the fear that people would try to impose to, to not share our faith and to not be public about what we believe in Jesus Christ and what we think that God says? How do we deal with that? If you've been with us over the last couple of months, we've been walking through the book of Daniel and we've been talking about just this. We've been talking about, we've been looking at the life of Daniel and his friends, and they lived in a world where they had to live out their faith in God in a culture that largely did not believe in God. And we're watching and seeing how they do that. And then we're asking ourselves how we can do the same thing, because we live in a culture, in a world that by and large just doesn't believe. And today we're going to take a one-week break from Daniel. We're going to stay on topic, but we're going to move forward about 500 years, and we're going to ask this question. How did Jesus deal with this? You know, Jesus came to a world that by and large didn't believe what he was teaching and didn't believe in him. So there were times and moments of fear and intimidation placed towards Jesus. And how did he deal with those moments? We're going to look at one of those together this morning in Luke chapter 13. And as we do, as we do, you and I are going to learn something about how Jesus, not just about how Jesus responds, but what it looks like for us to be able to respond to those moments. So Luke chapter 13, take a look at what happens here. This, these people called the Pharisees, they come and they talk to Jesus. And if you're not familiar with who the Pharisees are, they're the religious leaders of the day. And they don't really like Jesus much because they have all the power and all the authority when it comes to religion and rules over the Jewish people. And Jesus is challenging that. And the people that used to listen to the Pharisees are now listening to Jesus. And so the Pharisees don't like him, and they're trying to silence Jesus. But what happens is, is that throughout the story, throughout the Gospels, if you look at it, Jesus makes it pretty clear a number of different ways that he doesn't really care what the Pharisees think about him. And so the Pharisees learn that on their own, they're really not going to be able to silence this guy. So they turn to a different person to see if that will work. 
And watch what they do here. In Luke chapter 13, verse 31, this is what happens. Jesus is walking and teaching, and it says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And here's what happens here. Uh, the Pharisees know that they're not really able to intimidate Jesus into being silent. So they try to bring the government of the day and the Roman Empire into this whole thing to try and stop Jesus from talking. And the question is, why would this be so intimidating to Jesus? 2,000 years removed from this, we may hear that phrase, and it just doesn't really hit us that hard. Get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. Well, what does that mean? Well, to understand what it means for Herod to want to kill Jesus and why that would have been so threatening, we have to back up and we have to look not only at this Herod that the Pharisees are talking about, but also his father, a man named Herod the Great. I want you to think back. Some Western civilization class you took somewhere, maybe a long time ago, you learned about this guy, Herod the Great. He's an important figure in history. And if you have that Connect card that you got when you walked in, I want to invite you to turn to the back of it. Because we're going to get into a little history here for the next couple of minutes. And I think being able to follow along on the back there, there's a map there, could be really helpful. And I'd encourage you maybe to fill that map out as we go. But that area that you see on the back of your card, the blue part, that's the Mediterranean Sea. The little dot that you see there, that's the city of Jerusalem for a reference point. That whole area was controlled by Herod the Great. You see, what happened is about six decades before Jesus was born... The Roman Empire came into this region and took over. And you remember the Roman Empire from your studies and history and movies, TV? A powerful group. And they came and took over this whole region. And about 37 years before Jesus was born, they put Herod the Great in charge of this whole region. Now, here's the deal with Herod the Great. Stick with me for one moment because this is going to be important to understanding why Jesus is threatened and how he responds. Herod the Great, when he ruled this whole area, when he took over, it was very unstable. In fact, for the first time in a long time, right before Herod took over, the Jewish people had had some independence. The reason uh, people celebrate Hanukkah today, today is to remember that time. The Maccabean Revolt, Jewish independence, and now here comes Rome and they take the whole thing over. So you can imagine the people aren't happy going from being independent to being controlled from Rome. And so Herod the Great, he comes in and he comes down hard. Herod's kingdom was ruled by fear and intimidation. There are two things that mark Herod's kingdom. The first thing is that he ruled through fear and and intimidation. In fact, do you remember the story when Jesus was born and the wise men came and they told Herod that a king was born in Bethlehem and they were going to follow the star to see him? Remember that story? Even if you don't go to church that often, maybe you remember that story. The wise men, they go, they see Herod, they said, there's a king that's been born in Bethlehem. We are following the star to go and worship him. And Herod says, well, tell me about him so I can go worship him too. And the, the wise men go off. And what does Herod do? Herod issues a decree to kill all baby boys two years old and under to try to get rid of this threat of a new king. That's how Herod ruled. You can imagine the loss and the devastation of a decree like that. Imagine how painful that would have been. And this is how Herod ruled his kingdom. And it wasn't just how he ruled the people. Anytime there was uprising or insurrection, he would take care of the people who were responsible. But it was even very close in his own house. 
His favorite wife, he had 10, but his favorite wife was named Miriam. And twice he went away on dangerous business trips and he thought he might not return. And when he went away on those trips, he made plans that if he should die while he was away, that someone would kill Miriam so that no one else could have her. And then, even after all of this, later on in life, he thought his wife was cheating on her and he had her killed anyway. That's the way he ruled. He killed his own father. He killed his own uncle, Joseph. He took out his own mother-in-law, which... No, I'm just kidding. My mother-in-law's in the room. She's in the building, so, uh, you know, we're all right. But this is the way Herod ruled. It's cruel, vicious, fear, intimidation. He even ended up killing his three oldest sons. And that's how he ruled. That's how he kept order. But that wasn't the only thing that marked Herod the Great's kingdom. The other thing that marked Herod the Great's kingdom was that, was that wealth and the size of things were prized. Wealth and the size of things were prized. In fact, when you start reading about it, Herod the Great's kingdom really wasn't that different than our kingdom, the culture that we live in today. You had a lot of money and you had a lot of significance and you could build big, big buildings. You were important in Herod the Great's kingdom. In fact, if you were to travel to the region today, you could see all sorts of evidence of the things that King Herod built. You could even go to his grave, which is this giant man-made mountain called Herodium, where his body is buried. And he built this mountain that stands high on the desert horizon so that for generations and generations, people would know just how great he was. He built seven palaces, and his largest palace was bigger than any palace that the Caesars had in Rome. And so Herod's kingdom was marked by this fear and intimidation, but it was also marked by opulence and wealth and architecture and technology. There's a reason he's Herod the Great. Now, when Herod dies, stick with me, when Herod dies, and he dies just a couple of years after Jesus is born, and don't let the irony get lost on you here, Herod dies and is placed in this mountainous grave. And I have a picture of it here. He's placed in this mountainous grave that exists to this day and thousands of people proceed and worship him and celebrate his life and his burial. And just a couple years earlier, there was a king that was born in a town that mattered to nobody, of Bethlehem, placed in a major. It's ironic, isn't it? It's just this idea from the very beginning that Jesus' kingdom was going to be very different than the kingdoms of Rome. So Herod, he dies, and his kingdom is split between three of his sons. And you can see on the map that you have in front of you that there's three areas that are different colors, and those are the areas that go to his three sons. Why is it split three ways to three sons? Well, quite frankly, he only had three sons left. And so it went to those three heirs. The northernmost region went to a leader that we call Noah's Herod Philip. The middle region, Galilee and Perea, uh, which is where Jesus did most of his ministry in Galilee, goes to Herod Antipas. And the southernmost region, Samaria, Judah, the city of Jerusalem, goes to Archelaus. Now, why does this matter? Because when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, get out of here, Herod wants to kill you, the person they're talking about is Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son, who, by the way, was a chip off the old block. He ruled with fear and intimidation, built big cities in Galilee, wanted people to know how great he was, and if there was any insurrection, he snuffed it out. 
But there's a very specific reason, a very specific reason that Jesus should be worried about Herod. Jesus should be worried about Herod because Herod has already killed one of Jesus's closest relatives. One of Jesus' relatives has already been murdered at the hands of Herod Antipas. So when the Pharisees come and they say, Herod wants to kill you, it's not just this, this idea that's out there. This is personal. You remember that before Jesus was born, his aunt Elizabeth was pregnant, and she gave birth to a son named John, who became, who, what, who did he become? John the Baptist, that's right. Say it with confidence. You know the answer, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Jesus' ministry, so he prepared the way. And here's what happened. You think, you think things happen in our world today. This is a soap opera back then. Herod Philip, the yellow part there, he had a wife named Herodias. And Herod Antipas, the green part there, he and Herodias, you know, kind of got close. And they came up with this plan that Herod Antipas would divorce his wife and Herodias would divorce King Philip and that they would get married. And so they did that. They divorced their current spouses. And then Herodias came to Galilee and Perea and she married Herod Antipas. And so Herod Antipas uh, married his sister-in-law very publicly, which I think even in today's world, we would say it's probably not the right way to do it. And in that world too, they weren't too thrilled about this. So John the Baptist, he's scrolling through his Apple newsfeed one day and he sees People Magazine covering the wedding of Herod Antipas and Herodias. And he doesn't like it at all. So he starts tweeting and blogging and, and commenting and saying to everybody in the region, this is wrong. Our ruler should not be marrying his brother's wife. How do Herods deal with this sort of thing? He was arrested and he was put in prison. And one night, Herod had a giant party. Herod Antipas had a giant party. And he did what any terrible stepfather would do. He had his young stepdaughter, daughter of Herodias, her name's Salome, come and dance for everyone at the party. Not like her dance recital piece. You know what I'm talking about. Dance for the people at the party. And he's so pleased with what she does that he says to her, he says to her, I will give you anything you ask for. And she goes and talks to her mom and they come back and they say, we want John the Baptist's head on a platter and he gives it to him. So when they say, Jesus, get out of here, Herod wants to kill you. It's a big deal. It's personal. What would Jesus say? What do you say when the world comes to you and says, stop it? Stop it with all the Jesus stuff. Stop it with the Bible stuff. Get it out of the workplace. Get it out of the classroom. Get it out of this world. Stop it. What do you say? Here's what Jesus says. Look what he says in verse 32. And Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox. It's a big statement. Herod's looking for you. He's ready to kill you. Jesus turns and without hesitating and with full confidence says, go and tell that fox. It means exactly what you think it means. Go and tell that sly, cunning, crafty animal this. This is a different Jesus than we are used to seeing. 
Most of us, we picture Jesus as, as the only uh, Jewish man born in Palestinian region who has snowy white skin and long brown straight hair and blue eyes, right? That's our normal picture. And he pats children on the head and he loves everybody. This is a different picture. This is the leader of the day who rules with fear and intimidation. And they say to him, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus turns and he says, will you go tell that fox this? There is no First Amendment here. There is no right to free speech. Jesus cannot say whatever he wants publicly about the ruler of the day, but he does it anyway. And here's what I want to know. Where does that confidence come from? Because I want that kind of confidence. I want when people challenge me and pressure me and try to intimidate me into thinking a different way or believing a different way or shutting up my faith and not talking about it, I would like to, and I'm sure you do too, be able to respond with all confidence. So where does Jesus get that confidence? Well, he tells us right in these next few verses. Look at what he says. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing." Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One of my favorite preachers and teachers is Alistair Begg, and he says this. He said, all of us have to deal with three questions in our life. All of us have to deal with three questions. Everyone, not just Christians, everyone has to deal with three questions. And three questions are this. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? That to have any sort of meaning or sense of purpose in life, all of us have to face those three questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I Going. I want to suggest to you this morning that the reason Jesus has confidence in this moment is because he has absolute clarity on why he is here. Jesus has confidence in this moment because he has absolute clarity on why he is here. And he says it to him You go tell that fox what? I'm going to continue to do what God has called me to do. I'm going to heal today and tomorrow. I'm going to cast out demons and cure people. I'm going to go and try to gather the people together that God has called me to gather. And he begins to lament in this moment. So, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's looking towards that city where he'll end up and where he'll be crucified. And he's saying, I came to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are resisting me. Jesus knows exactly why he's here. He is here to do the work of God, and he is here to gather God's people. He knows exactly where he came from. He came from his Father in heaven. He knows why he's here to do God's work, to gather his people, and he knows where he's headed. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to raise again, and he's going to return to his Father. And that absolute clarity on where he's come from, why he's here, and where he's going gives him absolute confidence to look the Pharisees in the face and say, you think for a second 
that Herod is going to stop what God's doing? You see, Herod seems big and scary until you put him into contrast with the kingdom of God and what God's doing. And Jesus looks back and says, how do you possibly think that Herod is going to stop the work that God has given me to do? Herod has no authority here. Herod has no power over me and what I'm a part of. I've come from God. I'm doing his work. I'm gathering his people. I'm headed back to him. What do you think Herod is going to do about it? Let me ask you this morning. Do you have absolute clarity in your life? Where you came from, why you're here, and where you're going? This is a big problem in our world, I think. Because many people in our world don't. Many people in our world don't have clarity on where they've come from and why they're here and where they're going. Those are ultimate questions. And we live in a culture that looks to temporary things to try to answer ultimate questions. And the more our culture turns towards technology and intellect and science to try to answer ultimate questions, don't get me wrong, technology, intellect, and science answer a lot of important temporary questions, but they don't answer ultimate questions. And we live in a culture, in a world that's going to those things, running to those things, hoping that they will answer the ultimate questions. And what we're left with is a culture that has no idea where it's come from, has no idea why it's here, and has no idea where it's going. And our world is baffled. Our world is baffled that as we increase in science and technology and as we pass laws that we think are making the world a better place, things that are very terrible like anxiety and depression and suicide are on the rise. I read a whole slew of articles again this week. I feel like every week I read a whole slew of studies on this. And people can't figure it out. We're making the world better. Why are people so depressed? We're, make, we're, we're smarter than ever before. Why are people so full of anxiety? It's because these things can help us with problems that are temporary, but they can't solve the ultimate questions. We can cure cancer and solve global warming, but if we come from nothing and are headed to nothing, what is the point? So we distract ourselves in our culture so we don't have to deal with it. I am very convinced that the reason we're glued to our phones, part of the reason we're glued to our phones, part of the reason a lot of people in our world in their day with a bottle of wine and Netflix streaming until they fall asleep is because if there's noise in our lives and things going on and we're constantly looking and constantly scrolling, we don't have to stop long enough to deal with the silence and face these questions because the answers to them are overwhelming if we don't have a good answer. The questions themselves are overwhelming. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've done what we sang about earlier, you've surrendered your life to him and you follow him with your life, you can live with absolute clarity that you know where you came from, why you're here, and where you're going. 
You came from a God who loves you. You are here, just as Jesus was here, to do the work of building his kingdom and calling other people to him. The details and specifics of that might be unique to each and every one of us, but the overarching theme of why we are here and why God has us on this earth to show his love to people and do the work that he's called us to do is the same. And that clarity provides ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose in our lives because we know that when it's all said and done, no matter what's done to us here, we're going to be back with him. So the Herods of this world, whether that is the government under which we live or whether that is the state in which we live or whether that is the boss that controls your workplace or the school union that controls your school or whatever it is that represents Herod in your life where there would be fear and intimidation to snuff out you living out your faith or sharing your faith. Keep in mind, as Jesus did, that you came from God, you are here to do God's work, and you will return him. So what in the world can these things do to you? When you have clarity on where you came from, why you're here, and where you're going, you can live with absolute confidence in what God's calling you to do. And I don't know what the repercussions would be if we really stood up for our faith in this world. Some of us would be mocked. Some of us would be ridiculed. Some of us would have to deal with our family giving us a hard time. Some of us might get kicked out of a classroom. Some of us might lose our jobs. It's the reality of a world we live in, a culture that doesn't believe. But if we know where we've come from and why we're here and where we're going, there's nothing that the kingdom of Herod can do to us that is more powerful or larger than the God that we serve. You know what's interesting to me about Jesus and the kingdom of Herod? Jesus is surrounded by it his entire ministry. Three and a half years, he's walking around. The cities that Herod built, the buildings that Herod built are all around him. Jesus has no time for it. No time for it. Everyone else around him knows who Herod is, knows that he's in control, knows that his children are in control. Jesus has no time for it. In fact, he only mentions Herod twice in all of the Gospels. Living in his kingdom, surrounded by his culture, one time he tells his disciples to be wary, not to be like him. And the other time he threatens him in public in Luke chapter 13. That's it. He didn't even have time for it. Because when you're focused on the kingdom of God, what do the kingdoms of this world matter? And so I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you've been so focused on the kingdom of Herod in this world that you have not taken the time to even deal with the ultimate questions of where you've come from, why you're here, and where you're going. I want you to know that there is a God who loves you, who created you. There is a Savior who died on the cross for your sin. And if you would surrender your life to him, your life will be infused with ultimate purpose and ultimate meaning because now you'll be absolutely clear on where you came from, why you're here, and where you are headed. And maybe today would be a day that you stopped paying so much attention to the things of this world and started paying attention to the things of God's kingdom. Or maybe you're here this morning and you know this is all true, but you find yourself all the time caught up in the things of this world, the size and the wealth and the opulence of this world, and so much so that you're willing to, to lower your faith. You're willing to stop talking about your faith so that you don't risk losing the things of this kingdom. 
Maybe today would be a day that you put things in their correct order and put the kingdom of God before the kingdoms of this world. Maybe today you just needed a little reminder of clarity in your life. This life, it's so hard to maintain clarity in today's world. And no matter what happens in this world and in your life, the truth remains. You came from a God who loves you. He has you here to do his work for his kingdom, and you are returning to him. Would that clarity give you confidence as you walk through this life? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward, and as they do... Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website, at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.